This episode of Silent Giants is brought to you by Ali. Ali, powered by Verizon locations, are developed by Verizon, the world's leading technology company. In collaboration with Ali, a membership-only community workspace for creators. Each location is a community curated powered by the emerging technologies and thought leadership of Verizon. With Ali, Verizon is bridging the gap between startup and corporation by helping the community workspace build next-level ecosystems for entrepreneurs. And now, on to my interview with Philip Humans. But it's also something in truth, man. I feel like once I did transition and really know for a fact that I wanted to be behind the camera, I wanted to be a director, I wanted to be you know, a filmmaker in that way, it felt like I had so much more control over my destiny. Yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music, let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants. Wanna study they moves, silent giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, y'all. <laughs> Bob bless everybody and welcome to another episode of the Silent Giants podcast. Silent Giants highlights the superstars behind the scenes of popular culture. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at, at Silent Giants Podcast. To keep up with my life, music, and more, be sure to follow me as well at, at Corey Cambridge. Our special guest this episode is film director Philip Humans. Philip is a native of New Orleans and a film student here at NYU whose film Burning Cane took home the 2019 Founders Award for Best Narrative Feature at New York's Tribeca Film Festival. Philip became the first African-American to win Tribeca's top award and the youngest person to ever win the award as well. He stopped by the podcast and I got to learn so much about this budding silent giant. He talks about his upbringing in New Orleans, how he got into film, how he's enjoying his experience here in New York City, the makings of his award-winning film Burning Cane, how he got superstar actor Wendell Pierce to be the lead actor in the movie, lessons he's learned along the way, and so much more. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the Tribeca Award-winning film director, my friend, the silent giant, Philip Humans. Philip, what's up, man? What's up? What's up? Dude, it's such a pleasure having you on the podcast. And Thank you. Once again, this this interview reminds me of how much I love New York City. I was at home and I was watching NBC Nightly News. Oh, my goodness. And your segment popped up online. And I was like, wow, this kid is super fascinating. And then I looked on Instagram and realized you live in New York City. You're a student here at NYU. And I was like, let me reach out. Dude, that's, that's great. No, thank you for having me, man. That's so crazy to think like... I don't know. The whole pressing is such a crazy thing to think about. The fact that I don't know. I don't know. It's still it's still something I'm like, like whoa. Like people have heard of me. I don't know. It's so weird. It's so weird. But it's it, cool though. Yeah, but I mean, also is the beautiful thing about living in New York City. You know, facts, facts. How's the day going for you? Uh, good, good. I got some uh, insanely exciting exciting news that I wish I could dive in deeper. But I think, but soon I'll be able to. Uh, explain yeah, 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 yeah. Kind of stuff. you're such a jovial guy hey thank you, thank you. <laughs> i uh i try to keep the spirits up you know um but yeah no today was good i got some writing done i went to uh the library um deep into into rewrites for my next feature um and got some incredible news so i'm 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 on a natural high right now man it's it's insane that's yeah. amazing brother Thank you. Because <laughs> you're from New Orleans. New Orleans, born and raised. Uh, how are you adjusting to New York life? Are you, are you liking it? I love New York. I love New York. Um, I think it's made me appreciate more aspects of home than I... Uh, am I speaking into it well? Yeah. Is that, okay, cool. Um, I think it's, it's making me, I think, appreciate certain aspects of home, but it's also, it's also a completely different beast. Like, I've met people here artists of different mediums that have completely changed my perspective. People that in truth, I'd never would have met if I wasn't in a place like New York, Right. you know? So overall, and also I, I think I'm always going to have such a sweet spot for New York because in truth, what has happened recently in terms of like the appreciation or, or just the fact that, you know, the work has resonated with people in that way. Like New York was where 
that first really happened. Like Tribeca wanted this film and everything has come from Tribeca and Tribeca is a New York institution. Yeah, it's just New York. New York has, has felt like almost a good luck charm in a way. So like I definitely, I think moving forward, it's like there's so much, there's so much of the business that's based in LA. But I do realize now more than ever, like once you kind of get your foot in the door, you can kind of make your work your primary workspace and living space anywhere. Hmm. You know what I mean? Because you can hop on a, a, a FaceTime call or, a, you know, and there's some stuff that I think is probably really beneficial to be in LA, especially people often say if like television is your concentration. Um, but at least I know for narrative feature directors like myself, at least where, you know, that's where your primary sort of concentration is. Um, people can live anywhere. Like Ben, my executive producer, He's born and raised in New York City, but he lives in New Orleans whenever he's not working or going to L.A. or New York for work on his next film. And, um, and it's crazy. After, and he came down to, New, to uh, New Orleans, I think, when he was a kid, fell in love with it. Whenever he could, he moved down there, and then he made Beasts. So it's like, yeah, you can. it just opened my mind up to the fact, like, this industry is really democratized at yeah. this point. Like perspectives can really kind of prosper from anywhere. So it's cool. It's cool. Are you feeling more like a, like your heart was a New Yorker from birth or are you still in, or a, a New Orleans, New, New Orleanian? Yeah. New Orleanian. Yeah, yeah. A New Orleanian living in New York city. Ooh, that's so, that's such an interesting question. Um, Cause in, look, I hadn't, the last time I came to New York before I came here for college, cause NYU was the catalyst for me moving up here. Um, I'd come to New York one time and I was like six, like two days. Don't really remember much from being six, let alone that trip. But I remember like certain things It always seemed like this, like this just metropolis, like this, just from those fleeting memories that I had from then, I still, I don't know. I think it just feels like a perfect storm in a way because there's something so intoxicating to me about New York, like just in the fact that there is that sort of like relentless hustle all the time. Um, and it's just, uh, it's an engine. Like it keeps you, it keeps you going to the point. I feel like people in New York can definitely uh, take a moment and relax, but there's a certain fervor to the city that makes you not really want to do that. And I think in a good way, ultimately it's good. Do you still feel like, like that Southern boy in the city well or did you naturally i think because for some folks like I, I never had a for me personally i never had an awkward moment in new york where i felt like i didn't belong got you like yeah, i kind of yeah. like got here and realized yeah yeah me too yeah no i'd say that too i'd say that too um i also think new orleans is a is an interesting place because it's it's kind of people at least a lot of us locals usually describe it as like an island of blue and a sea of red so like there's certain explain that more like so um Red meaning Republican, blue meaning, okay. you know, liberal, liberal. Democrat. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, and for the most part, that's always been true. And it's really especially true when you're actually there because like the moment you go outside of Orleans, Orleans Parish, which in Louisiana, Parish is synonymous with like counties in other states. Mm-hmm. Um, and Orleans Parish is literally just the city of New Orleans. So it's, they're synonymous. When the minute you go outside of Orleans Parish, the laws change radically for a ton of things. I think mainly for people in my age group and in our community, you know, the weed laws, you know what I mean? Like that's the biggest, clearest thing I could say in terms of like in New Orleans, you have a blunt or a joint on you. It's a ticket. Outside of Orleans Parish, it's jail. Like okay. It's, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's that stark. So it's, so, but in New Orleans, um, I feel like my, my sort of, I was always... Honestly, went to the best schools, you know, academically within the city. So I was always surrounded by by kids who were always questioning just a lot. I feel like there's a certain like liberal consensus of the people that I was around that I think would be a, a, a starker difference if I had come to a place that seemed to have a completely different like value system. Like say like if I was Either way, I know that I'm a liberal individual, so it feels like a, a natural escalation. But um, 
I think maybe coming from a smaller town in the South and then going to the big city where it's not only a different thing in terms of environment and all the people that are around you, but literally in the way that people commonly think, the views that people have. Yeah, New Orleans is a city and it's a liberal city despite being in such a red state. Right. Um, and I think it's a big reason why Louisiana now has a Democrat mayor, you know? Describe that like gr- growing up. Tell me more, like, a little bit more about your background and, and where you kind of fit in into, into the scene okay. in, in New Orleans. Okay, for sure. Um, first, touching on the economic divide, I think that's definitely true. What's interesting about New Orleans, though, is that it's not quite as, it's, they're clear, you know, there are wealthier areas and poorer areas, just like any city. But what's interesting about New Orleans is that within blocks of each other, the the it's like a complete economic switch. Like say, like take the 17th Ward, for example, Holly Grove. It's literally... That neighborhood within a block or two transitions into one of the richest neighborhoods in the city, St. Charles Uptown. Like it's like the 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 richest of the city live in such p- close proximity to the people who are in the most economic hardship. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's just an interesting it's an interesting thing there. But for me, you know, I grew up I grew up, you know, well, you know, my mother um even though she's a single woman, you know, she went through school. She's a doctor. So she's always been able to provide well for my sister and I. Um, but I think in terms of like the social scene of New Orleans or anything in that way, I was, uh, I think my, the people that I was around was, I guess, curated in a way just because of the schools that I went to, like NOCA. Um, and they were all not curated. That's the, that's the wrong word because they're, there were public schools, you know, but the people that when I think of New Orleans that had such a big impact on my life are all artists. You know, they're all, they're all people who are, you know what I mean? Pursuing, you know, different, you know, I guess risky ventures or like actually, you know, dreaming something and all that kind of stuff. So, um, I'd say, Hmm. I'm just trying to think about like, what was my New Orleans like, you know, but you, you mentioned that your your uh, you mentioned your mom mm-hmm. was your dad around? Mm-mm. No, no. Uh, did he just leave early or? No, 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 no. It was um, so. My mom, we had my mom got so me and my sister uh, were born through insemination, and so no, it was just my mom. Okay, okay, yeah. I I, I grew up in a single parent household. You know, it was funny is that that you mentioned that. I was talking to a friend of mine. I won't say his name. He's a film director as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Someone I'll definitely introduce you to. He's an amazing human. And one day we were talking and he's like, you know, what's my narrative? Mm-hmm. You know, because he makes films and kind of when he get, does press, mm-hmm. there's a narrative that goes along with you. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And we touched on the fact of like, yo, like your, that your background has a role in how you perceive characters. Definitely. Right. Like if my mom like l- left my dad yeah. when I was five years old, I may have a negative impression, uh, a negative vision of women mm. in my films indirectly. Got you. That makes sense. You know, you know, do yeah. you think that like anything has played in that way? Yeah. Has your uh, by growing up with just your mom and your sister, has that do you think that plays a role in how you create or, or think of characters, how you portray them? Well, definitely. I'd say that um, I think because in my films, uh, women are always decision makers. You know what I mean? In, in Burning Cane, although Wendell is uh, our lead male character, the real decisions come down to Helen, you know, and what she decides to do with her son. Uh, and in my life, literally, you know, the women, my sister's always been older than me. And we have always been the decision makers. And our family, and in truth, the human's family, is actually very sparse on men in terms of just people that have been born, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Uh, but but no, I'd say that's definitely had a had a big thing. I mean, my mom is amazing. Like she's despite the fact that she is still very practical thinking. You know what I mean? She's still like, oh, Philip, you need to finish school. Um, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, I get the, I get what's happening with the film. Um, but I think you should really, it'd be really valuable for you to finish school, that kind of stuff. Like I, she's still very practical in that way, but she is at the same respect, been incredibly supportive 
of my entire dream, you know, of she'll give me precaution, but she'll still at the end of the day, like say, like she knows I have to do what I have to do. And she knows that I have, you know what I mean? Like, and a big part of that, I think comes from the fact that her mother, when she was younger, my mother wanted to be a screenwriter, um, but her mother told her to get a real job. And so I think because it was shut down for her fairly early on, that idea that she wanted to make sure that she didn't replicate that same sort of constricted mindset on us. Uh, you mentioned the the word dream. Mm-hmm. You know, like where did your dream begin? Did it be- begin from your mother? Um, <laughs> not not really. I think I think for me, the dream for film came from. I don't know. It's so hard to talk. It's so hard to even and think about like what. I know the inception for me with within film as an art was through acting. When I started acting when I was younger. Um, and I, and I thought I wanted to be an actor for a while. Um, but you know, I, I think there are two parts of that. One, uh, I was auditioning and getting small parts in like local productions that came around New Orleans, but I'd never had the opportunity to really expand a character, build an entire narrative. You know what I mean? And, uh, and I think that just comes from the fact that those were smaller roles. You know what I mean? They were day player stuff. You come in. You have this. You can still expand on that way, but it wasn't like I ever had uh, any sort of feature opportunity to then build an individual, you know, build all of this and really live with that character for that long. But either way, on the sets, all those productions that I went on, I was always so much more interested in what was happening around me as an actor in terms of like the conversations that the director and the DP were having, the conversations that uh, you know, the director and the producers were having and the director and the AD, you know, just the way that the set moved in a way, I think was so much more alluring to me than being an actor. Because in truth, when you're on set as an actor, a lot of it is stationary time. But but also, too, you mentioned that you started off as an actor. But mm-hmm. going back to your mom, did, did she influence you? Or, but did, did her love for movies or film or screenwriting influence you to go into acting? Well, I know she told me early on, um, I know we would just have conversations when I was like 12 or 13, just talking about film once I started getting into it. It was her, definitely her opinion. She was like, you know, behind the cameras where the real decisions are made. And she would say stuff like that. And um, so I think that she is excited about it, but it's also something in truth, man. I feel like once I did transition and really know for a fact that I wanted to be behind the camera, I wanted to be a director, I wanted to be, you know, a filmmaker in that way. It felt like I had so much more control over my destiny. Like it felt like I, cause I just, I have, I feel for actors because there is a lot of rejection that comes from that and for filmmakers as well. And I understand that, but at least it felt like, well, at the end of the day, as far as like an applicable sense, I can go out there and make this movie, whether people are going to see it or not, I don't know, but I can go make a movie, you know? And that was just, it was empowering, emboldening in a way, you know? I I see the same thing with, I feel like the same way with my career as a rapper, right? And I look at that the same way you were saying about the actors, right? When you're a rapper, you need so many other things to work for you, Mm. right? Like you have to get a producer, right? You have to find someone to shoot your video. You have to do all these other components. Um, It's really hard to be in control fully of your destiny. But I feel that when you're making content, like- Yo, you could just I could plug in my microphones and yeah. hit the rec- hit record and no and I and, and and that's that's definitely that makes that makes a lot of sense I think but I do have to mention this though because like it does it does take it does take a community or people usually say an army but in my case it was definitely community because like I wouldn't have been able to do any of this without my friends of course or you know the people who were like really willing to get into the gutter with me um, when money budget was just not always available in truth. And that's, and that's, that's a big thing, you know, because it's just, it's just, and when I was, I think making Burning Cane, it just would not have been possible without, you know, Moe's Mayer, my producer, uh, Ojo Akinlana, who were also my friends in high school. And they were just willing to just go, 
go through the ringer with me. Okay. So <laughs> I have so many questions to ask because number one, I've never interviewed anyone who's made a feature film. Oh, word. That's so this, cool. So, so this is the first time I've ever interviewed uh, someone who does what, what you do. And to add to, I'm, I'm really amazed by your story also to buy your age. So you have this idea, you're on a set, you want to be behind the scenes. You want to become yeah. a director. Yeah. How did you become a director? Like the, what, what, what was the first steps of that? And what age were you at this point? Um, so I was probably about 12 or 13 when I started, when I, when I made my first short film, it was about, uh, it was my girlfriend and my God brother, uh, Eli. Um, they were grave robbers out of New Orleans cemetery. Uh, and it was terrible. You know, I kept making more terrible short films, but learning, you know, I was trying stuff out. I was being incredibly experimental, you know, just trying stuff that I knew no, no I, I knew if it was good, maybe I might show somebody, but if it wasn't, then, you know, you know, thanks guys, but it's, it's bad. Let's move on to this next one I want to do. Now, were you writing the scripts? Too? Yeah, yeah. I was writing scripts, um, writing more scripts than I was even making shorts, you know what I mean? But it was, I was just really... I don't know. I can't, I can't even, I don't even know what really, I think I just, I just love being on set. Like I just love, it's like probably when I'm like the most at peace and it's where I feel like I have the most control, not in an authoritative way, but just like, I don't know. It almost feels like, and this is, this is, I'm, di- I'm diving personal in a way, but it almost feels like I feel so much more internal control on set than in any other predicament in my life. Mm. So I think I was just, when I found that early on, that it felt like, it's just so fun to me, man. Like I, I just love the process. Like I love writing, shooting. I love the grind of editing, you know, and I, and I just, I fell in love with it really. Do do you find that, um, that being on set is where you find the most purpose? Mm. I say, I say, yeah, yeah. I'd say, I think, I think it's just, uh, and it's also my closest personal relationships. Like the people that, and with Burning Cane, again, it's especially special because these are all really my friends, people I know, you know. Um, but you get, you become a family on set. Like you become like staying in an Airbnb, uh, all in one tiny Airbnb because that's all the production can afford. You're forced to talk to everybody all the time, do all that kind of, and it makes a family. You know what I mean? Where it's it was so communal, um, and those are all the people that I talk to the most today. Like really, you know, Mose and Ojo are my two best friends in my whole life. Yeah. So you're you're thirteen, fourteen. You you start making these films um, that you're like these probably aren't good, but <laughs> but you're enjoying the process. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, Getting better, learning, just trial and error. You know, and that was up to that that. And that was the case really all the way up into making Burning Cane. Like the film I made before Burning Cane was called Ivory. So tell me about and, that. And so Ivory was about, um, it was about uh, two uh, young black teenagers in New Orleans. That was actually one where I was in it. I played a character in that one. Um, and uh, one of the uh, boys, his brother dies. Uh, we don't see his brother die, but we meet him immediately in the aftermath of it. And it's just about them sort of just tightening their bonds and becoming greater friends and that other friend sort of stepping up in a way, realizing that his friend has just lost his brother, you know? So that was, that's another more character driven thing. But that film also, while I, 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 I dug the concept, my execution was not the best. I was just not, I was not being as professional about it as I needed to be. And that's why with Burning King, I think bringing on like a Wendell Pierce, you know, Wendell's an incredible actor outside of that. His sort of established stature just made us all approach the entire situation. I think an even just a completely new level of professionalism, in all honesty. Now, when you mention Ivory, is this at a point in your career where you go, okay, I I know that people around me like the movies that I'm making? Uh, I didn't know. No. I mean, well, (laughs) what's interesting about Ivory? Oh, actually, yeah. Actually, yes. Yes. Because... Ivory was the first time that I'd ever tried to really get people to see my work. So I went to, after Ivory, there was this uh, s- small arts theater in New Orleans called the Zeitgeist. Okay. Uh, and I went to the guy who owned that and I said, hey, could I sh- have my film show here? Um, and then, 
we like do a split of like who comes in, blah, 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 blah. And he said, yes. And so I had a sort of like premiere thing. And then the film showed there for I think like a week or two after that. Um, and granted, I think the only people that came in were like family friends or like people that, um, and there were some days that nobody came in, but either way, it was just like at that first event, I also had a, I also had my friends, um, put up, uh, Artwork, Ojo, uh, a producer and production designer, is also a painter uh, and a tattoo artist, among other things. But his, uh, he's an incredible Afrocentric painter. And so I had him in the theater space put up a gallery there. So when you watch the film, you could also go there. And so whoever came to see the film would also have an incentive to try to hopefully get one of his paintings sold for him. But, um, but that was the first sort of like venture in that way. And then that's when people in sort of mass saw it. And it... Uh, it was encouraging for sure. I think it was just like, I think it was just me sort of trying to build that business model for myself, you know, just as soon as I could. And it was, that was definitely motivating because all my friends that came, uh, even though I knew that film especially was very imperfect, um, you know, they, they complimented me about stuff that they liked about the film, you know, helped me, help sort of encourage me, I think, um, and just add, you know, a sliver of confirmation or validation, you know. Um, and, but I also asked them to be honest with me about some of the stuff that they didn't like, you know, and I, I do always appreciate it when people are honest with me about that kind of stuff. Cause it, it saves me in the end, you know, what was the difference between that professional process between ivory and burning cane? Um, so for ivory, it was even down to like a scheduling thing. Like we would have certain, we would have certain like dates that we were supposed to go in and shoot. Um, and then for minor things that really shouldn't change shooting dates or for some reason, like I would call off the shoot or if I didn't feel good about something, about some rewrite I did on it, I would just call it off instead of like working that on. And so that movie took way longer than it needed to to be made. And it was, I think it was, it was like maybe 20 minutes in total at the end of it. But it just... I just realized that my heart was not in that film as much as it should have been. Uh, and I had a realization that if I want anything to come of this, I have to give everything to this. Like I have to actually, I have to actually spend nights deep in planning, deep in, deep in, deep in storyboarding, deep in working with actors, actually working with actors, sitting down with them, meeting with them, talking to them about the character, as opposed to giving them the script. Here's a set day, come and, come and shoot. You know what I mean? I think I just had to change my whole philosophy about what making a film was. And I think with Wendell coming on board, I think that that was sort of invigorated the moment I knew that I was going to make a feature. As soon as my instructor at Noka Gabe said, he thinks this could be a feature, the script that I wrote. So it was initially a short film, showed it to him. He was like, this could be a feature because of how grounded in character it is and how there's no like extravagant set pieces. So it feels like it could be something that could be shot feasibly, you know, financially. Um, and once he said that, I became just invigorated and obsessed with that. And then with that, I think that mindset started to form. But I think in earnest, it really was cemented when Wendell came onto the project because just just in anticipation for him coming in was a completely, like, I mean, any set that I had 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 never run smoother than when we were all grinding gears in it because, you know, we had an incredible talent there, you know, so if, and he was giving 110% and we had to give it too, you know. Okay. Wow. There's so many things to unpack here. So I want to get the window pierced too, but I have this one question. When you're speaking of this professional process from Ivory and the professional process uh, going into Burning Came. Did you have any mentors or people who you looked up to who could groom you or give you advice? Like, how were you able to, to know? Sometimes you don't even know that you're not being professional. Mm. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Because. Well, I'd say I will. So in terms of like set experience, once in, in, in those times of me making my short films, I was PAing on literally every local production I could get on. So okay. like I was around, like I was, I was still in the gutter, like trying to learn all these other positions. And so I spent a lot of time doing that. But I think honestly, the most formative person in my entire, in this whole experience from like behind the camera association 
would be my instructor at NOCA, Isaac Webb, and my friend and executive producer, Ben Zeitlin. And what, what is Ooh, NOCA? That was a uh, voice crack. But uh, NOCA is the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts. It's an arts high school in New Orleans. And I was in uh, the media arts uh, film program. It's called Media Arts, but really it's it's a film program. That's all we do. Okay, there. okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so now tell me the origins of making, of writing the film. Like what inspired it? What was the, the light bulb moment for you? Um, hmm, that's interesting. I think uh, for me, the inception, like the, the substantive inception of Burning Kane, I think was just kind of an amalgamation of all the years of questioning that I had with going to the church every Sunday, never getting any of those questions really answered. I think that was like the substantive root of that initial short script. And, you know? and, and, and explain Burning Cane to the listeners. Got you. So Burning Cane is um, a film about a rural Louisiana community, um, a Baptist rural Louisiana community. Uh, it follows a mother uh, named Helen Wayne, her son, uh, Daniel Wayne, his son, Jeremiah, and her pastor, um, and the film, I'd say more than anything, is about their relationships, but it's also sort of conversation about, you know, the real danger of enacting uh, a fundamentalist interpretation of religion, uh, you know, the destructive cyclical nature of violence, um, and how so often, you know, vices, whether it be drinking or any sort of substance abuse, are often passed down in lineage when they're normalized and introduced within the household. Um, you know, and it's also... On Helen's case, it's like, what does what does a mother do? Like, what sort of guilt would a mother feel when she knows that her son is turned out in the way that he has? You know how how does how does one respond? How does it's just? I think the film for me was a conversation because I and I say that because I I I don't give any answers, you know, because I don't have the answers to any of those. It's really just about posing questions. I wanted to, I wanted it to. I wanted it to start a conversation about us having a sort of active, objective conversation about religion and its role within our community. Um, because and I do say this, that I do not, I do, I do not want, and for me, from my perspective, Burning Cane is in no way a film defined by my differences with the Baptist church or by my differences with the doctrine, doctrine, you know, the film is about the people who populate Laurel Valley in their lives, you know, my entire intention with it was to humanize them and to make them feel as multidimensional and as, you know, morally ambiguous when you show them in that sort of sphere of that fundamentalist religion. You know, whoever you are, you take what you want from it. I just want to show you this. You know what I mean? I think there's so much power in films that allow some sort of free association, someone to look at something and say, okay, that felt somewhat objective. You know, and then you can extrapolate whatever opinion you want, you know, because and with the church, it's especially interesting, too, because there are certain aspects of the church that I do definitely appreciate. You know, I think gospel music is beautiful, like it's the most vulnerable music out there, you know, and I think that there's certain like communal aspects of the church within our community that aren't really replicated in many other institutions. You know what I mean? Like people in the church often will take a bullet for each other. You know what I mean? But in terms of like the doctrine, you know, what's being preached. Um, there's just so much that I couldn't really get behind. But again, uh, that is in no way a lens that I want. That you want it to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, but it's interesting though, because I wanted to have that sort of objective conversation and push that. Yeah. But I do not want it to be defined by, oh, this is Phillips statement against religion. It's about these people. Right. You know what I mean? Right, right. It's, a, it's a story about this family and this community. So yeah. Yeah. Cause, but where did the, I want to go back to this, but where did the like inception of like, you know, yeah, that's going to be what the film's going to be about. Uh, Ooh, that's so interesting, man. Cause it's hard. I, I think with, so with the glory, I think going back to that, um, I'd kind of saw these images of like a rustic sort of color palette within southeastern Louisiana. Um, and I knew that I wanted to make my first feature. Actually, my first feature that I wanted to make was the Black Panther story. Uh, and I actually started writing that before uh, Burning Cane. But I knew that with Burning Cane or with The Glory at that time, that I wanted to have a conversation about a mother and her son 
and just sort of living with them and really highlighting that that portion of the guilt that she feels given the man that he's become. Because the glory is a more concentrated look into Daniel and Helen. And there, Tillman is still there, but Tillman is there when she goes to church in, in that script. It's a concentration on Helen and Daniel and their relationship, their tumultuous relationship, how Helen's been living in isolation for so long and Daniel's been living in the in the city. And um, when he comes to visit her sort of randomly, it's just her about, about her sort of reckoning with why he came because he never talks to her and it's her investigating that. And really once she figures out what it is, her coming to terms with that. And then it's similar to Burning Cain and she makes a decision. Hmm. She has a decision to, you know what I mean? Um, so I'd say they're just images. It's so hard to articulate where, why or where certain images pop up. But, you know, for me, I was raised in the church, you know. And, and it's funny that you mentioned that the origin really started from texture. Mm. Yeah. You, you know what yeah, I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it was it was a texture first. Uh, I'm very, I'm very, uh, um, I, I'm, I'm really captivated by the initial light bulb moment. Oh, dude, and, I get what you're saying. Yeah. You know what I mean? And where folks get their initial inspiration. And for some people, like in music, some people play the drums. Yeah. And like, oh, I hear that beat. And that B led to the bass and the bass led to the keys. Yeah. Right. But then I think from you're saying what spawns your inspiration is the texture, the colors, you, you know, like, yeah. and then everything else kind of falls into place. If, and, and correct me if you think I'm wrong. No, 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 no. no. I get you. I got you. Yeah. No, you know, it always starts, especially because like, and with music too, it's like first you get, no, there, there's so much truth to that, especially, especially because it's such a, it's a visual medium. You yeah. know what I mean? So um, and then for me, I think after that, it was like the music, like I, my, the, the music that I started listening to, like right now, like the playlist that I listen to on the clock is like late sixties, symphonic R&B, uh, early seventies soul, you know, it's really dictated by whatever I'm working on. And in Burning Cane, that was so true. You know, it was just, it was, you know, Lightning Hopkins, uh, Robert Johnson, you know, Blind Lemon Jefferson, these blues legends. Uh, and then it was the Mississippi, the Blue Spring, Mississippi Baptist delegation. It was Mary Lou Williams. It was, it was just, it was crazy, man. I was listening to more gospel music during that time, just in that inception phase and through Burning Cane than I ever have and probably will ever intake again in my life. You know what I mean? Just because of the fact that I was in that headspace, you know, it's, it's so interesting. It's like, I, I think that's so true. Like the texture, I see that. That's an interesting word to put with it too. And then, and then the other influences come. And I guess in my case, it was the music. And then the story, I guess, came from a more personal thing. It's like, I love my mom. I do think a part of that whole scenario with Daniel and Helen, even though it's probably difficult for me to say because I'm the one who wrote it and made it, but I feel like if we want to go on like, I guess a different sort of track, then there probably is some part of the sort of, roller coaster ride that sometimes is my mother and I's relationship. Yeah. You know, we have a much better relationship now than we always did, but I wasn't sometimes when I was younger, man, I, uh, I mean, I could be a brat sometimes I mean, cause, eight cause, or nine. We, you know have, we have no perspective. Yeah. Word. Yeah. When yes. you're young, you don't have a perspective. You haven't lived enough lives in your own life mm. to understand another person's life. Word. <laughs> Word. I, mean? I feel that, you know, and, and another thing too, that as I'm, I'm talking to you and I want to get more into the film because there's so many more questions I have. But as I'm talking to you, you have a very mature demeanor. The film has a very mature demeanor. It's from the perspective of a person that will be 30 years old. But then I think about going back earlier in the conversation, thinking about your upbringing. Now, I know that I was raised with my mom, too. Mm -hmm. And my mom was a hairstylist. I grew up, I felt I matured so much faster Mm. in my perspective because I was around older people. Mm. Right? So do you, and you had an older sister. Yeah. Did you feel like that played a big role in, in how your perspective is, how you're able to, when you're mentioning about the music you listen to, about yeah. the 1960s, 1970s. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah. Did, well, so much of that is, at least it, with music, it's like, yeah, I got to give my mom credit for all that. Like, that's probably the real, real reason that like most of my playlist is dominated by, like I said, soul music, uh, that late 60s R&B, you know, late 90s R&B. Um, gospel music, uh, you know, yeah. I, with Burning Cane in particular, it was really so rooted in my experiences in the church. 
know what I mean? The pastors that I knew that I spent Sundays listening to the, 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 my grandmother, who was a church accountant, like Helen and, and Marsha are. And it was just a world that I knew very well because this was a world that I'd known my whole life, you know, so far. Also, too, I feel like that me growing up in a single parent home and being raised in a hair salon around older women mm. allowed me to be more emotionally intelligent. Mm, dude, I feel that. Yeah, I'm a very emotional person. Yeah, but but emotional. I think there's people who have emotional immaturity. Mm. For most artists, even they might get they might go into in their personal life and yeah. be a complete. You know, you know. I wouldn't say I would hate, hate to say the word nut, but they might not do things in life that we find favorable. Mm. But when they get behind their instrument or they get behind their craft. They are just emotionally intelligent. They say the right things. They know what mm. to say. They know what to convey. Yeah, you know to to draw that natural human emotion. Yeah, but I see those parallels, and with you as a person and in your work, like hey. that, that's why I was really excited to see the film before we met, Word. because I was, I want to see like yo, what are the parallels between how can someone at this age mm. make something of this maturity and emotional. Emotional maturity level. Word, I, I appreciate that so much, man. You know? Thank you. So, 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 like, let's get into. You're done with the film, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're done with the the writing of the film. Yeah. Do you know at that moment this is pretty damn good? Uh, n- no, we didn't have enough time to to really. <laughs> I felt good about the script. Um, when I first gotten Wendell's information and sent that to him, I did some more rewrites because I wanted to really flesh out his character. Now, let's go back. Okay. How, how do you get Wendell Pierce to even, you are, at this point, how old are you? At well, I was, when I first got in touch with him, I was 17. You were 17 years old. Mm-hmm. This is a very, 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 very well-accomplished actor. Yeah, yeah. Like, this is not homie from the theater class in high school and we're cool. Yeah. This is going up to somebody that did you have a personal relationship with before? No, I, I had never I'd never met Wendell before, but um Wendell went to uh Wendell went to the same high schools that I went to, Noka and Ben Franklin. And I'll tell you what why I think that's might have played a factor in it. Um because so I was working at a beignet stand um uh called Morning Call. It mm-hmm. was my job. You know, I was a waiter there. Um, and I was somewhere that I was working to put gas into my car and also stock up for shooting that summer. Um, and so I went in, I was waiting on this woman named Lula Elsie. Uh, she's a dancer, uh, who also went to NOCA. Um, and she asked me, you know, what school I went to. I told her NOCA. She asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, I'm a filmmaker. I'm going to shoot my first feature this summer. Um, and I just started talking to her about the story. I started talking to her about certain characters within the film, like Helen, um, Daniel, Jeremiah, and I got to Tillman. Uh, I told her that all those other roles had been cast, which at that point was true. We had, we'd had people that were attached to that point, um, but Tillman hadn't been cast yet. And then she asked me what I thought of Wendell Pierce playing the role. And I was like, that's amazing. Like it freaked out, but I have no way to get in touch with him. And then she's like, starts texting him. And then she's like, hey, there's this NOCA student who would be interested in you reading for his film. Um, I guess she, she might have asked, can I, can I give you his email or whatever? Got his email, sent in the script, was freaking out. And then I realized like, oh, snap, that's not the script to send him. I need, I, and I emailed him. I said, hey, Wendell, can you please actually wait a week? Give me a week and I'll send you another draft. Um and then took maybe four or five days in the gutter, you know, locking myself in my room, getting that draft in and uh, sent that to him. Uh, and then after that point on, it was really just about making the dates work. Wow. He was just like, yo, this is amazing. Well, it, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't, it was never something where it was like, I maybe. I don't know. I see. Even now, I don't. I don't like to say that because I don't. I don't. I just. I think it's weird. Because because me, like it's my work. You know what I'm saying? But like I, I I don't know. I think it was his interest was clear because he was talking to me and he was still trying to make it work. You know, because this is a dude that I had. You know, I love the Wire, Treme Institution. Like let's go. Like it's like it's just the fact that he was still communicating with me at that point was validating. I was like, oh snap, like this could happen. And it was 
trying to make the dates work. But no, I'm not going to lie to you. There was a point in time where the schedules were not matching up when I wanted to shoot it and when he was available and it was getting closer and closer into the school year. And I was just getting nervous. And then at one point, it didn't seem like he was going to be able to because he wanted to, but it was literally a job obligation from the time that I had said I wanted to do it. And then I sent him this email, essentially just pouring my heart out, just like saying like, look, if there's any way that we can make this work, I do not see anybody in this role but you. Um, And it would mean the world to me uh, if you would do this. Um, And he's like, he sent me some dates that would work. And we moved forward to that, with that. Wow. So, okay. So here you are. Uh, you, you get the casting done. Um, how, how long did you have to take to make the film? Uh, we shot over the course of... So it was 17, 17 principal days. And then I think four or five days of pickups. So roughly will, like... Will that. you explain what, what that means? Okay, so principal photography is like excuse me, principal photography is like the, uh, the bulk, like main shooting, like say, how's the best way to explain this? It's literally, it's, it's the, it's the bulk shooting days in a film. It's like when the majority of the script is shot. Okay. Pickup days are when it's like an individual scene later on needs to be shot or maybe some reshoots of something what you could shoot later on. But like, in terms of like point A to point B in a script, traditionally, that segment in time is called principal photography. And so those pickup days are, like I said, those moments where um, maybe you want to get a car insert or you want to get um, you want to get uh, a character driving to a location. You know, but you don't need to shoot anything else. That would be a pickup day. Okay. Or like, okay. you know what I mean? Okay. Or if there were like different parts of certain scenes, like a, a bunch of different scenes, but like little portions of them, maybe like a close up of something. Like or like, just things, just smaller things, as opposed to shooting the entire bulk story. Got gotcha. you. Know? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so how many days again? So seventeen principal, and then four or five pickups. So that would be about twenty three, twenty two days. Now, also two for for that would be twenty one, twenty two. Yeah, yeah. For a, a, a filmmaker, and how do you raise money to make a film? Okay, so that's the, let's get into it. So, um, so I put all of my savings into it. Everything that I had gotten from every savings bond, every Christmas card that I ever gotten in my childhood, every birthday card that I had saved. Because obviously, some of that that I'm getting when I'm a kid, I'm going to go out to Toys R Us or GameStop or something. You know what I'm saying? Right. But my mother always made me save a certain portion of things, and so once I knew I was going to make the movie, I put all of that in my mo- my Mother, Moses' family, my producer, and other members of my family put money in to our Indiegogo that me and my producer started. Okay. Um, and then I was working at that beignet stand, and I was putting, like I said, outside of paying for my gas, um, put really all of that into Burning Cane. And then those funds got us through production. But then when Ben Zeitlin came on board immediately after principal ended, um, my Ben's advocacy for the film to get a grant from Create Louisiana. Now, now who is Ben? Uh, ben Zeitlin is uh, the director of Beasts of the Southern Wild, uh, and he's the EP of Burning Cane and uh, a good friend of mine. And how'd you meet him? Uh, I Instagram messaged him a uh, a trailer that I'd cut immediately after we finished shooting, and was like, "Hey, like I love your work. I just made my first feature film. I wanted to show you this trailer of it." Um, and I wanted to get your thoughts on the film, if we could ever sit down. And then he watched it, um, and he got back to me, and then we got coffee and talked about everything. I asked him so many questions about what it was like for Beasts of the Southern Wild to like explode on the festival circuit yeah. and for his entire life to change and all that kind of stuff. And uh, and he just, he was he's always so gracious. Like he was, me and Ben, thing about it is like, even though we were, I guess, working together in this capacity, most of our conversations are just about life, like just about little, because he's such an inquisitive person. So it felt like such a, such a match made in heaven. I don't know. I love Ben. Like Ben's, Ben's amazing. And so that grant gave us um, a cash grant to get some licensing done um, so that I could, and also some stuff that I could pay uh, like Ruby, uh, my co-editor, who was actually a grade under me at NOCA. 
But I see back then I was even thinking that this film was going to be something someday. So I knew that I still wanted whenever I could pay people, make sure that that was exchange. Um, and then we got an editing space at Second Line Stages, which is a production facility in New Orleans. Okay. Um, and then we also got final color correction and color from Photochem. So Photochem's main offices are in Burbank, but they have a satellite office in New Orleans. Okay. And so it was in that same office and all of that came through that grant. And that, that grant was pivotal because that color correction, uh, it just amplified the production value of Burning Cane. You know what I mean? I'd been editing the entire thing myself uh, until Ruby came in towards the end and doing really all of that stuff just from my eye and from my feeling. But it was very, very, it was dope to have a professional in that way, a professional colorist come in and offer their expertise. You know what I mean? And it proved invaluable in terms of, I think, just establishing the look uh, of the film and just, just, like I said, elevating the production value. Yeah. So now the the film is done, right? Like- Everything's completed. Yeah. How did you, did, did you have a vision in mind of what to do with the film after that? Well, I knew, I knew that ultimately it was going to be a festival submission. I was going to try my luck at the majors, you know, a Tribeca, Sundance, a Cannes, a Toronto, Berlin. I was going to try my luck. Now, how do you even submit your film? Well, I went on uh, Film Freeway. Okay. So what, what is that? Film Freeway is just an online submission site. Uh, you go in, you upload your film, and you you can. They have literally every festival, so it's like the smaller ones and the big ones. And you okay. can put them in your uh, your like your shopping cart or whatever. And so I did. I did it like everybody does it. You know, I just went on there, uploaded the Vimeo link to the film, paid the submission fee, and just waited. And then I told myself to forget about it. Um, because I was being so neurotic, thinking like, oh, will anyone ever see Burning Cane? Will anyone ever see Burning Cane? And then months later, I got, I guess, the biggest email of my entire life that it was from Kara Kusumano, the director of programming at Tribeca. And she said she thought it was a beautiful film and that uh, she wanted to meet up. Um, and she asked if we had, had, if we had assigned a world premiere status. Um, and at that point in time, I was just, it felt unreal, like surreal, because when I tell you, man, look, I just had a moment right now, like thinking about like, I'm sitting here talking to you about Burning Cane, like even though, even the success that's come to it, I have to honestly say, man, like in truth, like I never, I never could have predicted any of this stuff. Like, I, I don't know, like I'm having a moment right now, but like, I don't know, man, like that changed everything. Um, and were, you, li- you were living in New Orleans at the time? No, I was. It was when I came to uh, NYU. I was uh, in my psych recitation class. Okay. And I checked my phone. Uh, and another reason why New York feels like it's just like it's it's a place for me to be because like like I literally would walk to my meeting with Tribeca. I'm like, yo, like that's crazy. It's like around the corner, and it's Tribeca. So it's like it's so it was just cool. Um, but. But yeah, so that was, I think that was around, I submitted in August. So I moved moved to New York, moved into my dorm in August, and I submitted the final version of the film around then. It was picture locked. Picture locked means that there's no more visual editing happening. Yeah. They might still make ed- changes to the sound, but like in terms of the visuals on the film, like there's no more editing in that way. And so that was picture locked in late July. We got our final color print in late July. I moved to New York in August. Um and was doing final audio notes until my mother actually told me, she's like, Philip, you have to let it go. Like you have to submit because I was getting, I was like, I don't know if we should do it this year. Like, because I don't, I don't know. Cause there, there feels like there's, I just wasn't really satisfied with the audio mixing of the film. I wasn't bubble. I was just so many, so many little things that I was so neurotic about. And, you know, honestly, yo, respect to my mom again. Like she told me like straight up, you have to recognize when it's time to step away. Yeah. Like, and I think I was never going to come to that realization on my own. Well, maybe I would have eventually, but I don't think I ever would have been like, okay, yeah, maybe this thing is done. And I'm too afraid to know whether or not anyone will see it or not. I just have to take that chance. You know what I mean? And so I sent it out um, and months went on, nothing. And then that email, and then 
a whirlwind. All of, when I found out the film got in, I found out in like late October or was it early November, something like that. Yeah. And I couldn't say anything about it to anybody until early March. So I was like, for those months, I was hiding the biggest secret of my entire life. It was crazy. Wow. Okay, so so now you're you're at the festival. Like I've never been to Tribeca Film Festival. Where it's dope. It's dope. So, so tell me like what that experience is like. Was, was that your first time going? My first time at any film festival. Yeah. It was also my first time. Uh I had submitted like one or two of my shorts beforehand, but I'd and I'd gotten into like some smaller festivals with some of the shorts I'd made before, but I never followed through with any of them because I really was not confident that they were good enough to be exhibited in truth. Even I, that's a whole different thing, but like um Tribeca was amazing. Like Tribeca was everyone at I dude, I'm I'm literally like just so grateful for how gracious literally everyone at that festival is. Yo, they're so dope. Like from 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 Jane, you know, uh De Niro, uh all the programmers, um, they were all so kind and so and they responded so deeply with the story. I just it just felt great. In terms of the fat oh, you were going to say? Yeah, cuz well, was that your first time seeing the film projected that in big? like a big Yeah, yeah, yeah. What what is that like? Dude, insane. Insane. I went for a sound check before our first press screening because yo, the sound mixing situation is is a whole another story cuz it was like to the wire. Um but I so I went to sec- check sound at the Tribeca offices um, for like minutes before a press screening and saw the film and it was um it was it was one of those out of body sort of things like just f- first off just seeing something that I had always been seeing the biggest way I'd seen it before was maybe on a TV this big maybe most of the time it was on my computer or on a monitor about yay big you know um but it was dope. It was really dope. And the colors, I was one of my, I was really interested to see how the colors would transition on screen and it worked great. It was dope. So that was, that was a crazy experience. So, yeah. Um, I, I read also you, you received the founder. Found, Founders Award. Yeah. So yeah. explain uh, what the Founders Award is. So the Founders Award is uh, awarded to the best narrative feature at the festival. And did you know that you were going to be not, was, was it a nominated thing or was it all the films? Oh, wait. So, yeah. So I was in, so we were in, um, in terms of U.S., we were in, I think the top competition, we were in the top competition category, the U.S. narrative uh, competition. Uh, and so I knew that every film that was also competing against me was also going to be nominated. Um, but I had no way of knowing that it would have happened, you know, but we, we did, you know, and people responded well to the film. It resonated with people. So yeah. And uh, Wendell also won best actor and uh, I got best cinematography. Um, that if I'm not mistaken, you become the first African-American to win that award. Word, yeah. And maybe yeah. the youngest. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I found that out early on whenever we first had our, our, our um, well, I found out the youngest part early on. Because when I met first met with them, uh, with Kara, they didn't know how old I was, um, and they told me then that you're you're our youngest director, and so I knew that going in, but I didn't. Uh, like I said, I didn't know I was going to win, and I also didn't. I didn't know. I didn't know specifically that no other African American directors had made the award. I don't know why I hadn't had gotten the award. I don't know. I think a big part of that, because last year's Tribeca, I knew Nia got a lot. Nia DaCosta, yeah. really dope. I knew that Nia was like one of the rising stars out of that festival that year. So I don't. I guess I don't know why that sort of never clicked. I didn't really think about it that way. But when I read the headline after, when my mom was like scrolling, like, oh, Phil, look at this. That's when I saw that I was the first African-American. I didn't know particularly. I didn't know that at all before. I always say that being Black comes with a, a, a inherent responsibility yeah uh or any minority yeah. right whether you're gay or black or yeah a woman yeah uh it comes with a, a responsibility do you feel like a responsibility as a as a filmmaker yes and especially as a black filmmaker like it's my my yeah i think uh 
my films are dedicated to humanizing our experience as black people, you know, and I think the fact that I think something like that even just adds more fuel to it, you know, because at the end of the day, it's important. It's important how we are shown. And it's also important that it comes from a black perspective to make sure that the humanizing is never sacrificed in the case of caricature or demonizing. And that is, I, I recognize that early on, which is why it was, it was so important that even for like the church sequences in Burning Cane, um, those all had to be dealt with a different sort of level of particularity and respect because there's no way that any of that could have ever become caricature. I, would ne- I could have never allowed that because then that's such a disrespect to the subject matter, regardless of whether or not you agree with something or not. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like in like depicting a church service and trying to and trying to approach it honestly, as honestly as possible, is like super important. But it's cataclysmic in that whole sort of conversation about whether or not something is getting and getting an honest representation. As a black filmmaker, that is at the apex of it. I mean, with that sort of with the freedom to be able to make the work that you want to make, there is a responsibility there, and especially because I've defined my artistic identity by, you know, that pursuit of humanizing blackness. It's, it's completely, yeah, I, I, I recognize the responsibility, but I take it on, you know, I'm, I feel super fortunate, you know, it's, it's, it's dope for sure. How's your personal life changed and mm. how's your professional life changed? Personal life and professional life. Uh, personal life. I've been a hermit recently, man. It's crazy. Just because. Is it harder to be a hermit? Uh, uh, no, I think I find more reasons now. Just because I'm also deep in writing, like I said. So that phase is always such an isolating period for me. Uh, I love it, you know. But it also is like a place where I definitely sort of downturn socially, which is okay. You know what I mean? It's worth it to sacrifice some social experiences for the greater goal, but. Um, but no, I mean, it has changed some things, you know, I'd say in terms of, um, like some of my friends, like I'll, um, not, I just, I just try not to bring it up when I'm around them often. You know, I try not to, try not to, (laughs) because it could be very easy to like, just them be asking me questions or like, this is not everybody. Uh, or not Mose or Ojo, but just some of my friends that I'm not quite as close to as Mose and Ojo. Um, it can be easy, especially after what happened with the festival, for it to become like just an assault of questions f- from them about what's happening to me. And then I then continue to talk about it. I became insecure about that very easily because I'm like, it's not all about me when we're hanging out. Like, And that's why I tried to make it a point of like with a lot of my friends like just not really talking about film in that way, not as much, even though that's what I love and all that stuff. But it's just like, it's, it's, it's not, it's just, it's not human. You know what I mean? Like it's not. And I, honestly, I think this goes back to the earlier point that when I walked away from meeting you for the first time and seeing your work and then meeting you and seeing your personality and then hearing your story, that you're just a highly emotionally intelligent person. I appreciate that. Man. You know, what I mean, I, I think that always boils back. I think that that's your knack, like the 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 way that you portray and display your emotional intelligence and your emotional gift is through film. But I think you would, if you were doing music, you would still convey that same thing. Mm-hmm. Or if you were doing poetry, you would so like convey that same thing. Appreciate you know? that, man. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, so Philip, I end every interview um, with this closing question. And it spawned off because, you know, I've been able to interview some amazing people like yourself who've achieved some amazing things in their life. Yeah. And everyone I've noticed wants to be successful. Everyone wants to be great. Everyone wants to be the next this or the next that. But people don't, I find people don't really recognize the sacrifice that it takes to become great. Mm. Um, they just see the instant gratification of, you know, like I didn't know your journey in film. You know, I just saw the NBC nightly news special, mm. you know what I mean? And yeah. I'm like, Oh, that, yo, that's, that's, he's killing it. But I don't know the years, yeah. the nights in, the money you put in, the money yeah. you've saved to get there. What have you sacrificed to achieve greatness? Um, what have I sacrificed to achieve greatness? I'd say, 
Uh, honestly, a big thing was, uh, you know, a social sacrifice in that way. Um, and also, I mean, the money sacrifice is less, um, less important to me because this was something I wanted to do. You know, I loved, um, and I would have thrown everything I had at it, no matter how much I had. And so everything I did have, I did, you know, but, um, I think I just had to, one, I had to sacrifice, I had to sacrifice laziness, you know, or just the, just believing that, you know, there'll always be more time or that it's just a certain urgency was essential because I knew I needed to make that film then. And that was the time that I was going to be able to do it, you know, in terms of resources, in terms of all of that. Um, so it was, uh, I don't know, I'd say the social sacrifice is the biggest one because in terms of filmmaking, uh, the most social aspect of it is production because in pre-production and in screenwriting, it's very, it's more isolating, you know, but all of that is so willing, man. Like it's, 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 it's my dream. You know what I mean? It's the best thing. It's the best stuff. Like I love, I love making films. So all of that is such an easy sacrifice for me. Um, but I feel like those so, sort of sort of sacrifices, those social sacrifices are inevitable whenever you decide that you're going to put your head down and really get something done, you know? So that's what wow. I'd say. Yo, Philip Humans, dude, it's such a pleasure meeting hey, you. thank you so much like, for having me, Corey. You're really. a cool ass dude. Hey, thank you. Thank like, you. you're the youngest silent giant I've ever had on the show. Hey, so you broke that record hey, too. Hey, hey. <laughs> Thank you hey, so much, man. God bless you. you. And, Appreciate and you, I'm going to be keeping an eye on you in the future, man. Hey, you do big things. Thank you, man. My dude. Thank you. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of the Silent Giants podcast and to our special guest, Philip Humans. This episode was mixed by Mark Bird. And lastly, before we get out of here, be sure to check out my other show, OPP. Other People's Podcasts is the TRL of podcasting. Every week, I interview America's top podcasters to learn more about them and the dope shows they created. I'll provide the link to OPP in the description of this episode. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Pop bless y'all. Till next time.